Heather McDonald, what a pleasure. <clears throat> Thanks for talking to me today about your fantastic new book. I finished it last night, When Race Trumps Merit, a wonderful, wonderful new book. I'm going to suppose I'm going to suggest that we do something very different. <clears throat> I listened to your interview with Jordan Peterson. I listened to your interview with Brendan uh, O'Neill, and I've listened to your interview with I can't remember Chris, uh, some Christian woman. I can't remember. His, and I've of course I've read your other stuff. So here's what I'm going to suggest that we do: instead of this have being a, a, a mutual agree love fest, I'm going to pretend. Okay. to be a woke person and, I, <laughs> and i'm sure that people are gonna cut this out and meme it and to try to get me in all sorts of trouble but i <laughs> i am i'm gonna go through this doesn't get you in trouble i'm the one to be in trouble <laughs> <laughs> true after having read your manuscript i can genuinely say that is actually true um, I, <laughs> the, the thing about your manuscript is just overwhelming data. I mean, it's just meticulously sourced and a mountain of every, there is no dispute of the data. And so that's not, I'm going to just try something new. So I, I do want to acknowledge that, that might get frustrating for you. Uh, I'm not going to be woke in the sense of, you know, screaming or screeching or calling you a Nazi, but I am going to try to adopt the mindset and the ideological worldview of a. Uh, I don't want to say sane woke person. That wouldn't be quite accurate. But of someone who's bought into the ideology hook, line, and sinker. Okay. So, and I'm and I'm and I'm also going to try to stay in character the whole interview. Okay, we're going to have like a safe word. Like if I say red, that means I'm out of character. But I'm going to try to stay in character the whole the whole. It's kind of like the opposite of a safe word. A safe, <laughs> safe. <laughs> this, you know, I'll get back to sanity, and 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 uh, so it's probably going to do me some cognitive and epistemological damage to do this role play, but it's worth the sacrifice. Well, I agree that red is out of character. I think the phrase cultural Marxism is wrong and so overused. So if you're in fact red, it means you're not uh, uh, current lefty. Very good, touche. I much prefer a good old fashioned Marxist to uh, the current. Oh, listen, I'll listen for red when I can. Uh, OK, OK, your, your artillery fire. Yeah, so. And I agree with the old uh, Marxist because the rules of engagement are still relatively similar. OK, so. Uh, before we begin this exercise, we need to define certain terms, and I'm uh, looking at your book and I've highlighted um, certain words in the subtitle of your book is equity. So let's make sure you and I are on the same page before we begin the role play. Define equity. Equity in our current discourse uh, is basically a synonym for racial proportionality, an institution that is not proportionally representative of underrepresented minorities such as Blacks and Hispanics, if it is not, say, 13% Black in a computer science laboratory or a cancer research lab is per se not equitable. It would be equitable that cancer research lab would be equitable if it had 13% black oncologists. Okay, so equity is proportional representation of minority groups. That's what I see the cultural commissars charging constantly whenever they say there's a problem with equity what they are inevitably referring to is the lack of proportional representation and the uh source of that 
lack of proportional representation is inevitably some sort of meritocratic standard that has uh, a disparate impact on minorities. Okay. Okay. So we're in the same, we, we now, I have a different definition, but I'm going to, I'm going to go with yours. Um, slightly different. So now we only need to define one more word or actually maybe two more words. Define diversity and meritocracy, please. And then we'll begin. Diversity is itself yet another uh, euphemism for racial proportionality. Okay. It is a uh, synonym for a desired uh, ratio of underrepresented, underperforming minorities, uh, Blacks and Hispanics, because Asians don't count as diverse. Here's, here's a, another little translation key. Uh, students of color, to be of color, is by definition academically underperforming. Asians, many Asians on college campuses today yearn to be given the, the good housekeeping seal of approval of being of color, but they don't count because they're overperforming. Uh, so I would say diversity is another synonym for racial proportionality and uh, meritocracy or a meritocratic standard is one that is indifferent and blind to the trivialities of identity and is centered around the core competence that is necessary to succeed in a given institution. Okay. All right. So we're on the same, we're on the same page and and now I'm going to be woke. Uh, thank you very much, Heather, for joining me today on this edition of um, Woke in Authors. My, my first question to you, so I've read your book last night, and the first chapter, part one, is science and medicine. And so you, the, you have two, two chapters, chapter one, which is medicine's racial reckoning, and chapter two is how diversity subverts science. So w what is your basic argument for why equitable solutions based upon the definition you just gave are not, are, are, are bad? Because I don't think that race and sex are accomplishments. I don't think that they bear on the scientific project. Science is about the scientific method. It is not about the scientists. Uh, and any, any time that a job search or a irrelevant criterion is introduced into the, the reasons why one would select a candidate, mathematically, it's inevitable you're going to lower the quality of of the candidates that you choose. In this case, the reason we're talking about equity or diversity at all is because we have vast academic skills gaps that mean that a colorblind system of credentializing, of admitting medical students, of promoting medical students, of hiring medical faculty, uh, putting them on hospital boards, giving them research grants, a colorblind meritocratic uh, set of processes will not produce anything remotely like proportionally, racially proportionate outcomes. And so we have decided to substitute for 
uh, an emphasis and what should be an exclusive emphasis on scientific qualifications and attention to and a privileging of uh, the trivialities of race and to a certain lesser extent sex. Okay. Doesn't that assume that the goal of medicine would be to heal people? It does. Okay. Why, why would one accept that goal as opposed to having more people, more physicians, and I guess more broadly nurses as well, but let's just stick to physicians. Why is the goal of healing people superior to the goal of having more black physicians? Well, in that case, we might as well just give up any institutional goal and just say, for now on, every institution's only goal is to have proportional uh, population within it. So let's give up universities. Let's give up medicine. Let's give up Correct. hearing. And um, what, what, what's, so one, what's wrong with that? And two, the idea is that if we did that in the long run, in the short term, it would be a catastrophe if the goal of medicine is to heal people. But in the long run, it would give people, it would give minorities role models to follow. For, for example, I don't know if you ever watched Star Trek, but Lieutenant Avuro was uh, the uh, black communications officer in Star Trek, the original Star Trek when I was a kid. I'm 56 when I grew up. And she was the first, just incidentally, the first interracial kiss between her and Captain Kirk. But she was thinking about quitting and she went to Martin Luther King and talked to him. He said, no, it's absolutely vital that you don't quit, that you stay on the show. And the idea is that it shows black characters or black people in positions of authority. Could the argument not be made that in the long term, if one accepts that the goal of the hospital is to heal people, then in the long term, that goal would better be served by giving by having more underqualified minorities because that would give young people who are black an aspiration when they see people who look like them in positions of authority and over time that would yield better outcomes well i have to say mr leftist you're speaking in a more um uh explicit and and transparent way than most people i i I'm not an actual leftist if you're actually conceding that we would be admitting underqualified people. So I suspect there's a ruse going on. But but assuming that you're not a plant, um, that's a preposterous argument. But it is, it is the argument uh, relayed bare that we're supposed to accept, which is that uh, medicine is about a non-medical goal that the uh, right. Comparative advantage of doctors is not healing people or not advancing our knowledge of, of lethal diseases, but is somehow uh, being social workers or being, uh, right. you know, uh, social justice warriors. No, I'm sorry. I believe in the theory of comparative advantage that it is. Let me just state it is not doctors comparative advantage to be social workers. If you want to be a social worker, go to social work school. Don't don't waste mostly taxpayer money, becoming a doctor. So I don't accept your premise uh, that that the goal for the short term uh, should be equity 
and and the other problem is is that your your trajectory which is that if we accept lowering credentials now that somehow over the long term we won't need to do that any longer unless we look head on at the vast academic skills gaps and mr leftist i just want to show you what those are if i may Please, please. These are kept very carefully off stage. Please. 66% of Black 12th graders do not possess even partial mastery of basic 12th grade math skills such as arithmetic uh, or recognizing a linear function on a graph. Only 7% of, of Black 12th graders are competent in those basic 12th grade math skills. And the number of Black 12th graders nationally who are actually advance in 12th grade math skills is too small to even show up. Yeah, but you don't, you don't, in all fairness, you don't really need math to fix a leg that's broken. Oh, I think you do. I think Matt, the capacity to uh, absorb the extraordinarily increasingly detailed and frankly, uh, often numerically based medical knowledge is related to one's analytical capacity. If you can't do math, I, I really do not want a doctor who is deficient in mathematical skills. Uh, you know, I don't know what else. One oh, okay. Let, let, let me give you what you're looking for. But let me just, let me just say, yeah. I totally reject the role model argument. Oh, okay. I hate that argument. I hate it because it is a vicious circle. It means that in a field, let's just say we care about proportional representation, which I do not, but if we care, that we need to have our pioneers. It means you can never break if you have a, a, a zero representation in any given field, uh, you cannot break into it because there's no role models to follow. How did Marie Curie uh, become an expert in, in radiation and radiology? Because there were no females before her. The way she did it was saying, my role models are radiologists or people who understand uh, you know, the the whole science of of this field, I don't need a female role model. And that's the same for me. The idea that I need a female role model, if I were, say, a chess player, which I'm certainly not, I, I'm sad to say, uh, is ridiculous. Or a physicist, how about I choose for my role model, Albert Einstein? I think it is incredibly narrow to say that one can only aspire to follow in the footsteps of people who allegedly look like somebody. Okay. So there's a lot to unpack there and we haven't even gotten to part two yet. So you're probably familiar with uh, president Biden, uh, his uh, comment that he was going to, the next Supreme court justice would be black and female. Now I'm going to make an argument by analogy. Oh, I'm not a lawyer, but it's my understanding from ha having read about this that only two percent of of uh, people who graduate from law schools are black and female, and so the likelihood that the most qualified people would already be in that two percent, uh, uh, the most qualified person, because you're only talking about one Supreme Court justice, that's just extraordinarily unlikely. It's highly improbable, but the goal. The goal was proportional representation. The, the goal was not, in fact, again, I'm going to give you what you're looking for. 
you couldn't possibly get the well you, you could possibly get it. it's highly unlikely that you would get the best legal mind given that you're only looking at two percent of any given graduating class but the goal was not to get the best legal mind the goal was to put a black female on the supreme court so that goal was overriding having the best person for the position so why shouldn't that same reasoning be used in medicine or anything else that that the goal should not be to get the most qualified person for the job but the goal should be to get a member of a group who has been historically oppressed in that position because it's the it's it's a a scary, dangerous argument in both instances, whether it's jurisprudence or medicine. And I'm very glad, uh, Mr. Lefty, that you brought up this example. I just want to fill out a little bit Please. Your, your absolutely uh, insightful elucidation of this example. Let me note that in February of 2021, uh, when Biden was just taking over the White House, he let it be known that he was not going to submit his judicial nominees for the to the American Bar Association for their traditional rating of those nominees. You know, traditionally, a president makes his choices and he submits it to the ABA relevant committees on the federal. And they have a, a grading system of very qualified, qualified or not so qualified. Um, and Biden said. I'm not going to do that because the ABA is not sufficiently interested in or attuned to the necessity of diversity. Now, right. if you if 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 your listeners are in such a bubble, they don't know this. Let me just say the ABA for the last several decades is obsessed with diversity. It is all they talk about. Correct. They're about to get rid of the LSATs. Correct. As a, as a you know requirement to go into law school because they have a the LSAT is like every other standardized colorblind objective test has a disparate impact on blacks. ABA is diversity 100 percent, 24 hours a day. So what Biden was saying is my candidates are going to be so bad that they wouldn't even pass the test of the diversity besotted ABA. Now, right. so this means that this two percent and, you know, I, I'm. Don't do the math here, but I think that um, probably a, a, a black female as one of nine Supreme Court justices would be way overrepresented because black males are six percent of the U.S. population. So let's say black females are about the same. Uh, I don't know what one in nine is, but I suspect that uh, the one in nine is higher than six percent yeah but it would take it would take into account previous historical the fact there's been no female black supreme court justices so it would take proportional representation representation in historical context as well but i don't care about that you know what the, the the solution is if you believe that all of our skills gaps are the result of historical discrimination which is not going on now. I could not agree more that historically this country was appalling in its mistreatment, gratuitous cruelty directed at blacks. But that is not a reality today. The solution is not at the end of this process to say, okay, now we're putting mediocrities into situations 
that require competence. And I would just say again, I I I so applaud your comparison between medicine and jurisprudence. I think most people are are quicker to worry about the lowering of standards in medicine, not you, Mr. Lefty, but anybody with a remote shred of common sense who cares about who walks through the door in the emergency room when he's brought in after a car crash, but probably be less concerned about who's going on the federal bench. I would just say that's a big mistake. The quality of our jurisprudence matters enormously. It matters for the ability of people in the commercial field to plan uh, to have certainty of contracts, to understand, to believe that, that if they have a contractual res- dispute, they can go before a judge who has the capacity to read what are extremely complicated For sure. contractual uh, relationships at this point. And it also matters in the field of constitutional law, where we are setting out the principles by which we govern ourselves. And the idea that we are accepting putting people on the bench that are not the best we can find for the for the sake of color coding is ridiculous. I'll tell you, Mr. Lefty, somebody was just telling me that, that he was observing an oral argument in the D.C. Circuit. This is the federal appellate court for the Washington, uh, uh, Washington, D.C. It's the second most prestigious court in the land after the Supreme Court. And there was a Obama appointee on the court and a Trump appointee and a Biden appointee. And the Biden appointee was patently out of her league. That to me is very worrisome. Okay. So I'm going to bracket this because I, your book is so fascinating. I want to cover the rest of it, but I do want to come back to this idea of how should an outside external observer adjudicate between the arguments that you've made and and i don't want to mischaracterize you but the arguments that you made were fundamentally meritocratic in their orientation and the arguments that i made were fundamentally equity-based in their orientation and so it's a it's a clash of values but i i want to i want to go on to you write rather extensively in the book about uh culture and arts and classical music. So just if I may for everyone, chapter three, the crusade against classical music, chapter four, scapegoats and the rise of meritocracy, uh, mediocrity, excuse me, chapter five, making Beethoven woke, chapter six, can opera survive in the culture wars, seven, the revolution comes to Juilliard, eight, uh, the swamping of Swan Lake, nine, the demise of the docent, 10, museums apologize for art, 11, an art museum cancels art, and 12 abstainers. So, so a significant from 71 to 208. So let me present an argument to you and listen to what you have to say. So the fundamental assumption in this is that there's something intrinsically good about Chopin, Mozart, Beethoven, basically dead white people, there's something fundamentally important about that and that that's worth preserving as opposed to taking other well first of all do, do you agree with that yes well i will uh, listen i'm enough of a product of my deconstructive background that i actually 
fully understand the issue of canon formation. Okay, that's where I was going. In uh, radical changes in the literary canon and in the musical canon. So I know that intellectually. I can see the rise and fall of John Dryden in literature. I can see the obscurity and then the massive meteor- meteoric rise of Gustav Mahler in the classical music canon. Um, so, and, and bel canto opera was no longer performed for a long time and then 20th century saw a major revival. So I will admit that tastes come and go. That having been said, as a visceral lived experience, there is no way you are ever going to persuade me that when I am listening to Bach St. Matthew Passion, I am not listening to one of the most crushing, sublime human experiences of sorrow, grief, loss, and ultimate catharsis that one can possibly have. You are never going to persuade me that when I listen to Brahms' late piano music, I am not following the trajectory of a human soul into areas of terrifying eros and 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 longing and and a a, a sort of a, a love a sexual attraction that is almost you it's almost like you can't look on it like the face of a of a fury have so you I, ever have you ever listened to nwa or two live crew what have you ever listened to nwa or two live crew not knowingly whether I've been subjected to it in background in a in a CBS, I don't know. Okay, so what if somebody has their unequivocal testimony, maybe not as articulate as you've put it, but that they get the same kind of feelings from from that music that resonates with them, that's close to them? Isn't it just a matter of upbringing? And if we include, if we change the canon. If we decolonize the canon and we put in uh, people whose ancestors have been historically oppressed, wouldn't that create a more inclusive environment uh, in the context of the part two, which is culture and arts? Yeah, that's the fundamental issue, Mr. Lefty. And I, I absolutely admit to a conflict between my brain on the one hand and my heart and my feeling on the other. Uh, I am very, very aware of these arguments that all aesthetic experience is relative. Right. Uh, And yet I cannot give up an absolutely felt belief that there, it is possible to make aesthetic judgments. And I simply, and I realized too, that, any criteria that you may come up with to justify one's own aesthetic preferences are completely vulnerable to the accusation that they are ad hoc. So I could I could uh, spontaneously come up with a list right now that I think would would distinguish the St. Matthew Passion from with attitudes. whether it's complexity, harmonic complexity, melodic complexity, voicing, uh, you know, historical value, but that's at least uh, compared to what is the uh, routine, repetitious, and frankly, barbaric significance of, of gangster rap. But you could say you're just coming up with an ad hoc series of 
of um of criteria and i I will post hoc yeah yeah i would also say that i fully understand there's lots of i I mean i'm gonna absolutely admit that gangster rap i find repellent but there's lots of other non-classical music that is completely powerful tool the whole you should you should the american songbook and and big band song and american jazz and God, the, the it's it's America's contribution to world culture for sure. Uh, Cole Porter and Gershwin and Ira Ring Ber- Berlin. It's just it's astounding. Uh, and I would say the same thing about blues, rhythm and blues, and uh, you know, our a lot of folk traditions. I find the folk traditions of Eastern Europe uh, with their amazing rhythmic complexity. So, so oh, okay. So let me ask if we can have a compromise. What if we kept one of Beethoven's songs, but threw out every other white composer and included more people from Africa? Would 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 you be willing to make that compromise? We'll, we'll keep one song, one one not song, one um one of Beethoven's pieces, and then we'll take songs and folk music and tribal music, and we'll change the uh. It will also change the composition of the orchestra in terms of what instruments are used. Uh, w- would that be a reasonable compromise? No, it wouldn't be a reasonable compromise, Mr. Lefty. I guess I would also fall back on uh, sort of historical integrity, that there are certain traditions that have evolved organically. And I have said before, I find one of the most compelling dramas in human experience, the evolution of style. This is uh. something that is beyond uh, uh fathoming it is so it is so incredible uh you know how you get from the style of the gregorian chant through the grandeur nobility of 18th century high classicism with the symphonies and operas of mozart uh the symphonies of haydn uh and then into uh you know the the 19th century romanticism and into post romanticism now, all those changes represent different ways of human beings expressing themselves. A whole new vistas of expression open up. The same thing is true in literary tradition, how you get from the medieval romantic epic, allegorical epic, uh, into Augustan poetry, and, and then into the realistic novel where allegory is left way, way behind, or in visual arts. Same thing. It's all very amazing. So to artificially open up the Western classical tradition, which was this amazing discourse among different composers across the globe. You had people in Russia being influenced by what was going on in Italy or in... Yeah, they're all still white, though, and they're all men. There are really no female conductors that I know of. I'm not really... You mean composers. I don't care. No, there are... I mean, no conductors and composers, but conductors as well. Well, now there's tons. I mean, now forget it. If you're a white male, I'm I'm always amazed when I see my God, another white male has been finally it's been put on a conducting post. But believe me, it's getting harder and harder. They'll they'll soon be completely excluded from the podium. But Mm. conducting is sort of a a sideshow. The issue is, are there female composers? And actually, there are. There's everybody goes nuts over Hildegard von Bingham, who's a medieval composer but but in the 19th century there were quite a few and they're actually not bad same 20th century so i don't mind that if they're within the tradition but to 
to have these artificial ceiling quotas, it's like keeping Jews out of the Ivy League. Sorry, yeah. didn't cut it with me. Um, I, I would say the the criterion should always be, is this music excellent? Does it expand our knowledge? And to bring in uh, into the orchestra artificially instruments that were not part of it, I don't agree with. On the other hand, let me just say, I mean, one of the aspects of contemporary classical music is a greatly expanded percussion section. It's it is so world musicy. You would yeah, yeah. believe it. You know, there's like the entire back of the orchestra hall is one odd uh, percussion instrument after another. So that is actually happening. So these are all uh, these are very good questions, Mr. Lefty, because it's a combination of organic evolution and then some deliberate evolution. And I guess I'm going to be very wishy washy and say maybe I'm willing to tweak it a little bit here and there. And I recently, in fact, reviewed a, a concert at the New York Philharmonic that was explicitly race-based. It was about the theme of Black liberation. And I'll be honest, I went there expecting that I would write a pan, and I gave it a rave review. Um, but that was because the composers were very good. William Grant Still um, and, I and, uh, uh, can't remember his name. Not Hillstone. I, yeah. I wouldn't know him anyway. Yeah, but they were very good. So I'm not as much of a fuddy-duddy as it may appear. Okay, so the this question is as a very old pedigree, and it's about objectivity or subjectivity, and there's something objective and beauty. But I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bracket that. We could literally talk, and people have written books about it and spent their whole lives yep. thinking about that that yep. question. I wanted to situate that though in the context of the the part two of your book, and now I want to go on to something that I've been thinking about a lot because to be blunt, I never think about classical music. It just doesn't uh, totally uninteresting to me. Uh, law and order. Now this this is a an astonishing part three that is truly meticulously documented so chapter 13 a new crime wave 14 the road to anarchy 15 on double standards 16 a grim and ignored body count uh 17 mass shootings hate crime and race 18 the chauvin trial and its aftermath so before we delve into this uh, i'm going to accept by fiat because i believe it's true the data that you gave in the book it it corresponds to, I just wrote an afterward to the gift of violence. Uh, and I've, I've been interested in this subject for, for quite a while. So if I'd like to start by having a mutual, a place upon, we can, upon which we can agree upon facts, evidence, and data. So would you please mind providing us some evidence before I offer a critique? Well, the data shows that, uh, Blacks die of homicide at an extraordinarily high rate compared to whites. And contrary to what the Black Lives Matter narrative says, they're not being killed by the police. They're not being killed by other by whites. They're being killed by other blacks. The black homicide and shooting rate is correspondingly high. For instance, uh, blacks between the ages of 10 and 24 die of homicide at 25 times the rate of whites. Now, one would think that that would be a civil rights problem that the Black Lives Matter activists would concern themselves with, but they don't at all. And the reason they don't is because 
those Blacks that are being gunned down at that 25 times higher rate are being gunned down by other Blacks. And it is absolutely taboo to talk about Black-on-Black -black crime. I remember when I was barely starting to write about crime, hearing the phrase Black-on-Black -black crime, and you don't hear it much anymore, but when you heard it, it was always in a context of a program. The assumption was that's just an unfair term and it's a racist dog whistle. And well, why? It's a reality. Uh, and so we've got the 25 times rate. Well, the, the Journal of American Medicine recently came out with a study showing that what it called the first 18 months of the coronavirus epidemic, I will translate that as the post-George Floyd race riot era. Uh, black juveniles, those under the age of 17, died of gun homicide at a hundred times the rate of white juveniles. Now, anybody in statistics knows that those types of disparities like rarely happen. And again, <clears throat> the people killing those black juveniles are not white. If they had been white, we would have heard of every single one of those shootings, and we haven't. And who were the victims? They were one-year-olds, three-year-olds, five-year-old black kids gunned down in their homes, in their backyards, in their bedrooms, riding in their parents' cars, at birthday parties, jumping on trampolines. Okay. The carnage continues daily. Okay, so correct me if I'm wrong, please. The fact that we as a society cannot talk about or mention black on black crime does the does that not mean that even mentioning black on black crime is more hurtful more harmful and more dangerous than dead black people yes it means that the culture at large not just the activists would rather turn their eyes away from the pathological inner city culture that gives rise to these drive-by shootings than do anything about it. And, you know, I've, it occurred to me in the last couple of months that it's very weird. If you were in a Rawlsian experiment of sort of the pre coming out with the initial state or whatever he calls it before we know the, the original act, position, original position, we didn't know yet what, black activists, race activists would do, they could, you could imagine them either supporting black victims, crime victims, or black criminals. And I would bet on the, the, if you're a black civil rights activist, you would throw in your lot with black crime victims. It's just the opposite. We, it turns out that they would rather protect black criminals than protect black victims. Uh, okay. So let's, I want to linger on this because this is very important. Uh, you may be surprised by this, but I'm going to agree with you. Uh, so I think that there is overwhelming evidence that people don't care about this. For example, the incoming mayor to Chicago. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, ha has said that he wants to defund the police and he's comment on the, uh, he's commented uh, on the riots. Um, I can't remember what he said, but but it's very very vanilla response. Oh, it's just kids having you know a little getting a little mischief or something uh, in which people were murdered. So my my question to you then, <clears throat> Miss Righty or Miss Conservative, uh, Ms. Excuse me, my question to you would be: 
we live in a democracy. People vote for their leaders. People have voted in the city of Portland, for example, which I've moved out of, for Ted Wheeler, he, him, who has turned or is actively turning the city into a giant cesspool. And so, or actually, excuse me, rephrase that. It was actively turning the city into a haven of social, a haven of social justice. Yes, exactly. So my question to you is in democratic society, that's what people value. And so if that's what they value, then who are you to say that black on black crime or the murder of, 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 of black people are bad when people have consistently voted against any kind of meaningful intervention. And, and again, just, I can't remember the, the mayor's name. Um, Brandon Johnson, Brandon Johnson. Thank you. Thank you. And they have just elected him and he's explicitly had it as part of his campaign platform to defund the police. So who are you to say? Yep. You're absolutely right. And I, you're absolutely right, Mr. Lefty. I mean, I, and, and you say people don't uh, care about this. And I think that you're using a euphemism. I think what the real pointed issue is, is black people don't care about this because Brandon Johnson, who did several years ago, was explicitly a defunder. Then he tried to walk that back a little bit, but he still is for, uh, you know, moving enforcement into social service work. And he, who is black, by the way. So it is. Well, that's it. This, this is not a white colonizer in there. The highest vote for Brandon Johnson, who was much more left wing on law enforcement than his opponent, Paul Vallis, another Democrat right. in the runoff election. The highest vote counts and proportions for, for Johnson came from the highest crime neighborhoods in Chicago, which by definition are all black. So you're absolutely right. At this point, you know, I have said when when white conservatives stop caring about black victims, there's going to be nobody that gives a damn. Because right. So the, the people in these communities, they're far less bothered by it than you, as evidenced by their their way they vote. So I don't understand why this is a problem for you. Well, uh, you know, I've I've made a point in my writing on the police to go into police community meetings and neighbor and, you know, gatherings. And there are many law-abiding, vulnerable Blacks in, in high-crime neighborhoods who do want the police, who are terrified, who, especially the elderly, and it breaks one's heart. They're scared to go out and, you know, go to the grocery store. They're scared to go into their building lobbies when those lobbies are colonized by trespassing youth, hanging out, smoking weed, and selling drugs. And I spoke to a cancer amputee in the Mount Hope section of the Bronx who said, please, Jesus, send more police, because the only time she felt safe to go down uh, is when the police, she said, she said, as long as the police are there, everything's A-OK and you can go down. But otherwise, she's a prisoner in her own apartment. So oh. I tried to give voice to those people because they do exist and the New York Times never hears about them. But you're absolutely right that voting patterns would seem to be completely self-destructive. And they're also, voting patterns are not always consistent with polling data because frequently like white conservatives who like to say black people really want law enforcement, it's sort of a safe harbor, will point to various polls that say there was a Quinnipiac poll in New York City. Yeah, I remember that. that yeah. Black voters in New York by uh, a slightly higher margin wanted the police to engage in more broken windows type policing than white voters. And yet 
as you rightly and painfully point out, which is something that white conservatives don't want to acknowledge, when they actually come to vote, it's it's the usual racial pattern. And whether that's purely ethnic solidarity, which we've seen in this country since you know the Ellis Island era, or whether it's a ongoing embrace of victimology and they want to vote for politicians that that continue the idea that blacks are victims of a white supremacist uh world it's not really clear to me and and i would also say in frustration that there's almost a sense of lack of personal agency there's really nothing we can do about it which isn't to say that there are not groups in those communities that do go out and protest and and try to organize the community around some sort of we've got to talk about this but Frankly, nobody wants to talk about family breakdown. That is very unusual to hear black. Yeah, a, an adult adult male in the home in in, in, exactly. in particular. Yeah. Um okay, so th- there's just there's just so much to talk about here, but would you agree with this statement? Let's see if we can uh find uh, my my friends in australia have a, a channel we just i was just in australia and i did something with them they're called common ground let's see if we can find common ground here would you agree that the capitalist system that we have inherited banks and for supply demand etc cetera, etc cetera, that is only made possible by or or that is sustained by the police force so if you take away a police force, the idea that you could have private property would be jeopardized. I mean, I'm I'm generalizing here. You know, I suppose everybody could have a gun. It could be like the wild, wild west. But um, that the police stand between the capitalist system and the people. And if you eliminate the police, you can be more positioned to undermine capitalism. <laughs> Is that... <laughs> That's certainly true what we've seen with the rioting, the forced George Floyd looting and rioting and mayhem, that when the police back down, and, and in fact, we're sort of seeing that. It's like a slow, we've been living a slow motion riot since uh, right since the George Floyd race Okay, riot. but is, isn't, is that not a form of equity? I mean, is it not a form of equity when uh, people of color can rob a store? Because before they couldn't rob a store, and only white people were robbing stores. So, what was it? Is it not a form of a kind of redistribution along racial lines to impoverished people? And oh, if you take, I love this. Oh, thank if, you, for the impoverished people, Mister Lefty. I love that. Which takes me back. I will. I will. I will inform your readers of what exactly Brandon Johnson said okay. after the flash mob. marauded down the Magnificent Mile recently in in the annual rite of passage for South South Side, West Side youth. Yes. Um, He said, well, you know, what's really going on here is these poor people have been denied of opportunity. Right, equity. Safe places to gather in their communities. Denied opportunity. These flash mobs are organized by smartphone on social media. These kids all have smartphones. They are not deprived of opportunity. Nobody, the problem in America is obesity. Nobody is starving to death. Uh, they all have the latest sneakers. They they are living lives of affluence that far outstrip anything that Louis the Quatorze had, except for maybe the amount of jewels. But who knows about that with bling? 
So this is not a question of, of okay. being deprived of, of resources. Okay, may, may, maybe he misspoke. And entitlement. Okay, may, maybe he misspoke, but, but certainly you would admit that this is a form of equity. No, it's not. Who's it equitable for? The, the minority, you know, the Indian Pakistani who's in his uh, deli just trying to survive with his kids. And, and meanwhile, he's got this marauding group. No, I don't I don't consider them to be in the category of diverse given academic performance. I mean, historically, um, it was white people who were rioting. Black people didn't really have that much of an opportunity to, to riot. So why can't we apply an equity lens to this and say this is an opportunity for people who have been whose ancestors have been historically marginalized that they have the opportunity to riot? Well, that would be good because then all the goodies would stop. So if there's no if there's no security of property, uh, all those smartphones that these kids are using to organize their riots uh, would be much less available until they possibly disappear. So so we'll see what happens. We can we're sort of moving in that direction with all these stores now closing down because they would rather close down and deny their customers of their prescription drugs if they're a Walgreens or CVS then make arrests for shoplifting because when they do they will be accused of racism because the people that are arresting for shoplifting correct. are correct black. Cor so correct but but wait a second security of property and see if the goodies start there. okay Hold, let, me, let me let me pause you sorry to interrupt but this is important so I still am a little foggy why that is not an example of equity. I guess it is an example of equity. You're it right. is an example of equity. And if the zeitgeist now is equity, and if you know the Biden administration has placed equity at and at every level of the there are literally equity offices in the second debate with Trump, he was asked about equity. He didn't know the difference between equity and equality. Bernie Sanders was asked on Bill Maher. He doesn't know what equity is, although it's one of his his um, in his on his web pages his pledges. All the just anecdotally, all the emails I get from my kids' school constant equity. The whole society is consumed by equity. So when we see instances of riots and we see instances of uh, Joe Biden's getting back to what we said previously in the discussion of his cabinet has is the is is um, from more minority groups, etc. And I think I tweeted out what a what a remarkable coincidence that the most qualified people just happen to come from the most disenfranchised groups. You could say a lot of things about that. You could say you disagree with it. You could say, uh, you know, like we see uh, equity in sentence, sentencing now, criminal sentencing. We see equity in the police not wanting to be considered racist. So it's a kind of mass Ferguson effect. So that they don't uh, police in high crime, specifically black neighborhoods. You can say a lot of things about that morally, but you cannot say that is not equitable. Yeah, I mean, it's a, you've got the, the sort of the hard version and the soft version or the hot version and the cold version. So you have the, the soft, cold version, which is the racial preferences and the institutional, right. uh, you know, so, elevations of mediocrities. And then you've got the hot, right. which is the looting and the rioting. Okay. Not entitled. Okay, so we we have common ground here. We completely agree that in both of the hot and the cold, this is a form of equity. Now, let's take it to another stage. We voted in somebody who was very explicit on their presidential page that they, they were going to institute equity. We knew exactly what we were getting into. People consistently vote. Now, now if this were someplace else, if this were North Korea or Iran, okay, we would have a different conversation. 
But this is clearly what people want. Clearly. They want equity and they're getting equity. They don't want meritocracy. If they want a meritocracy, they wouldn't consistently vote in people. The superintendents of school systems, school boards, everybody, equity, doctors, American Psychological Association, woke, Scientific American, woke, nature, woke, SPLC, woke, ACLU, woke. This is what people want. So what's the problem if we live in a democracy and people want equity? They are certainly getting equity. They're getting equity in riots. They're getting equity in uh, um, looting. They're getting equity in murders. They're getting equity in um, the dismantling of the meritocracy and the elimination of the SATs. They're getting equity in the um, doing away with the Hippocratic Oath. I don't. What's the problem? We live in a democracy. People are getting what they deserve. Yeah, they're getting what they want. The issue is, yeah, are we a democracy? And I think we still are, but I know that there's many a conservative voice that would say, well, we're actually not a democracy. Uh, you know, there's such control over social media. Uh, okay, that's a little conspiratorial. I mean, pe- people... No, I, don't no I, don't, I don't believe there's a conspiracy going on, but there's certainly a, um, a, a consensus among the elites that they have the authority to declare certain forms of discourse or certain arguments out right. of misinformation. I'll agree with you. 100% we agree. We have common ground. Now let's let's extend that a little more. Can we not agree, for example, at school boards, there are equity, diversity, equity, and inclusion is, as far as I know, is in virtually every, if not every university in, in the United States of America. Yeah. I mean, this is not something of the elite this the people they either want this or they don't care enough to say i don't want this stop it and vote in different people well and then you come along and you're saying why is your work not characterized as anti-democratic i was just at a group of people that are sort of trying to form a dissenting group from woke ideology and somebody was describing uh, his the sort of blue collar residents around Boston, and he said they have no idea what we're talking about here. It's not on their radar screen. They're trying to you know hold on to their jobs or save money or whatever. Um, so the question is, the things that. Mr. Lefty, you and I are aware of, either appalled by or, 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 or celebrating, it's not necessarily clear that people know about it. Now, too, you know, too bad for them because they have the opportunity to learn about it. And so it they live in a democracy. Yeah, they, I, I completely agree. And I am often tempted to just throw up my hands and say, to hell with it. You know, why should I try and save you from yourselves if you're willing? And I especially feel this about the people within meritocratic institutions that are terrified and silent and i'm sympathetic to them because i'm not in one of those institutions where my job would be on the line by speaking out but i do admit that i'm frustrated with people in medical the medical profession that know how awful the attack on meritocracy is and yet they are silent they are watching their own life work right completely flushed down the toilet and so you again you see like okay if you're willing to do this why should i fight okay yeah okay so you 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 now have two 
I don't think you said Biden was explicit about his equity thing. And you're totally right. You're yes. totally right. He was explicit. He ran throughout on these this maudlin claim that black people right. right to fear that they're kids. On the other hand, I was stunned by when he was elected, even conservatives said he's the voice for moderation. They want they talked themselves into believing that he was going to be healing our divisions and is not divisive. And I thought, what are you talking about? He okay. has been anti-white from the moment he started running, explicitly okay. anti-white. And yet he was portrayed by both the left and the right media as being somebody who is moderate and a right. division. So that right. I begin to explain. All right, Ms. McDonald, you, you have two choices here. You can either go with option one, which is people have been bamboozled by this ideology and they've been hoodwinked into the whole equity delusion, uh-huh. kind of a, a playoff of your form previous book or you can say that it doesn't take a lot of intelligence to figure out the fact that when you dismantle a meritocracy you are going to have people who are not the most qualified people in certain positions we already see that in the airline industry we already see that in medicine and and you've written about that you did a fantastic job in, in the book about that so That to me means if you want to say option one, that's a different conversation, but I am going to argue now option two and option two is that it is more important to people if they go for brain surgery, for example, that they do not have the best person operating on them and that they have a person who's from an oppressed minority group. I mean, people. So let me make sure you're saying that that people actually do believe that they would rather have a diverse physician than than a physician who is competent. I think if you have diversity, you cannot have both diversity and meritocracy. I agree. That's I that's my whole argument. But exactly. That's exactly correct. But nobody is hiding equity. In fact, not only are they not hiding it, they're screaming it from the freaking rooftops. They're they're literally in every email, in every policy position, in every, it's everywhere. So I can't, unless you want to say that it's somehow people live under, even if you lived under a rock, you'd still know, hear about equity. So, so you want to argue option one, you want to say that, that people don't really understand that equity is proportional representation as you've just find it. They understand that. What they don't understand, Mr. Lefty, and what my book does is how big the academic skills gap is. They don't understand the formula that you just gave and which I often give, which is you can have diversity or you can have meritocracy. You cannot have both. People are totally clueless about the extent of the skills gap. And so they can, you know, these these universities can go around talking about inclusive excellence well, you know, you shouldn't need the inclusive if 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 there's excellence and you're you're admitting on a colorblind basis, it will be it'll become inclusive or diverse just because that's the odds. But inclusive excellence is again another tip off that no, we're actually put the thumb on the scales and we're junking excellence in favor of inclusivity. But I would just say that uh, it is not the case that if people say I'm for equity. They understand the trade-off because uh, okay. I go around telling these facts. Okay. okay. I started giving a trigger warning because it makes whites so uncomfortable 
to hear either the crime gaps or the of the skills gaps. Okay, so to make to make sure I understand, you are claiming that because people don't realize the depth of the disparity. Like if they thought that the disparity was very, very minor and very superficial, then they wouldn't think that that would manifest in a skill set of a pilot or a brain surgeon. Right. They still believe in the thumb on the scale. I don't know if there was ever the the myth of the thumb on the scale in academic admissions, you know, which is racial preference. Just a thumb on the scale. We've got two equal candidates and we'll just have a thumb on the scale for the female or the underrepresented minority. And, you know, I asked myself, would I mind that? I probably not, although it's always zero sum, but that I could live with. It was really truly equal. That never occurred from the very start when when Harvard started implementing racial preferences in the 1960s. It was precisely because the yawning gap between the best they could draw on in the black pool and the worst they could draw on in the white pool was so big that they needed massive preferences. So Okay. So so let me let me change your just a little bit. So I heard uh, my buddy Glenn Lowry, who I'm going to see this weekend uh, for University of Austin um, event, speak on Jordan Peterson's podcast when he said, even if 100% of the convictions of African-American men in prison are just, all of them, it is unsustainable to have a population one approximately one third of whom are incarcerated or under the supervision of the criminal justice system even if it's justified on an individual case-by-case basis given that that is the case and you don't touch on this in your book um and so perhaps this is taking us far afield if you think this is an unfair question let me know um, given that that is the case, what is the prescription? I mean, pre- prescription. Sh- so many people on my side want to abolish prisons. They want to defund the police. Uh, they and 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 actually, there's a piece in the New York Times. Yes, we really do mean abolish the uh, de- defund the police. Um, what is your solution for the people already in prison who have been committed of a crime, particularly a violent crime? Well, that's a whole cascading set of questions. First of all, I, I know. Um, so let me just write your final one down because I will definitely forget it by the time I okay, get a winded answer. Sorry, uh, sorry. People in prison. Okay, that's that's final endpoint. First of all, with all due respect, and I adore and, and you know uh, revere Glenn Lowry, I'm just going to disagree with him. I'm sorry. I, I think if if the fact is, is that one third of our prison population is black compared to a 13 percent black representation. Them's the facts. And we have to live with that. That is a better solution than having those people out oh, in the community. I think it's more than that. Sorry, I think I misspoke. It's, uh, uh, I misspoke, but OK, but you get the high, high numbers. OK, go ahead. Sorry. I, I know the numbers. The, the, the federal and state prison population is a third black. That is okay. three times about less than three times higher than the black population. It is true. One third of all black men have at least one felony conviction. Yes, that's what it is. That's what it is. Yes. Work very hard to get a felony conviction. Yes. Uh, you know, most most DAs are going to want to plead that down to a misdemeanor just to get you out of the system because they're so overwhelmed by crime. Right. So I 
I, I think that um, that is something we have to live with and work on the conditions. And I say we metaphorically, because frankly, I don't believe it any longer, Mr. Lefty. I think we have been trying for a very long time to eradicate these conditions. We can continue, you know, do-gooders can continue, but at some point, it's up to the community itself to heal itself and say, we're not putting up with this BS any longer of drive-by shootings, gang involvement, drug involvement, single parenting. It's up to people in those communities to take responsibility for their own culture. So, and, and so I'm just, I don't, I, I reject the assumption that this is something we can't live with. As far as oh, your okay. final question, which is what do we do with the people already there? Yeah. I would say this, the prisons are a scandal. American prisons are a scandal. They are dangerous, dirty, ill-kept for a large part because of diversity reasons. Uh, there's, you know, a lot of preferences in police hierarchies as well as corrections hierarchies. Um, there is no excuse that any prisoner should be at risk of rape uh, or or other problems getting beaten up by gang violence in prisons, although it's a very tough population. These people are in there for a reason. Prison remains a lifetime achievement for persistence in criminal offending. You have to work very hard at your criminal record to get a judge and a prosecutor willing to send you to state or federal prison. So these are the worst of the worst. They are not pot smokers. It is hard to manage. <laughs> it must be managed. And we should have them be clean and, and opportunities to work. It's hard logistically to do so, but they should have the ability to develop skills that will give them some shot at a productive life when they come out. Now, if you really want to be tough, Mr. Lefty, you're going to ask me about, well, what do we do with like felon disenfranchisement or the real problem, which is alerting employers to criminal background? And that is a very, very tough issue. Or yeah. departments. Do you do you hide the criminal conviction or or do you allow people to know what they're doing? And that is very tough. And I hope you won't press me on it. Yeah, no, 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 I, I, I won't. I, I'm trying to situate the conversation in what I think is often missing. So I OK, red. I'm out of character now. So um, I think what's often missing and the problem that you and I have is perhaps identical. I just listened to uh, Naomi Klein, uh, no, Naomi Wolf say that. I was uh, confused, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wolf is the promiscuity one, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, who was saying that, you know, she is on the left and none of the left-wing media will talk to her. I've had this problem for years. They just won't talk to me. And so, even though I've read an astonishing amount of their literature, <sighs> Obviously, it would be far better. So this is what NPR does when I did a series on NPR. One of the things I learned from listening to just countless hours of NPR is when they have when they when they want to see what somebody on the other side says, they ask someone on their own side what someone else on the other side says. And so I am now in that extremely un unfortunate situation. But the difference is NPR, all they need to do is find someone on the other side and ask them. The, the left, the woke left, not the left, the left, the you know, Noam Chauncey classical will certainly have conversations with you. The woke left, they simply won't. So I have to try to, it is my belief that it is incumbent upon us, rational, civilized people, philosophers in particular, to make better arguments than our opponents would make. 
you know, it's kind of a Rappaport's rule thing so that someone says, oh, wow, I wish I had. That's so clear. That's such a good argument. I wish it, I would have made it because they they haven't. I'm, I'm trying to do this in this conversation. I, I've tried. I don't know how successful I was, but one of the, the things that I think it comes down to is that word in your book that I spent so much time on is equity. So you and I have a, I believe in the meritocracy. I'm all in on the meritocracy. I believe the purpose of the hospital should obviously be to heal people. That's why they're hospitals. I believe that the purpose of every, equity in general and critical social justice, uh, equity in particular and critical social justice in general, takes an institution off of its mission statement and gives it a new mission statement under the guise of what the old mission statement was. So it's not even discharging those objectives. So where I'm going with this is, I think that what is happening at a fundamental level is two things are happening. One, there's a clash of values, right? Meritocracy versus equity. You know, we, so I also disagree with your definition of equity. I don't think it's proportional representation. I think it's, finding people whose ancestors have some historical um, oppression variable and putting more of those people in position. So I don't think it's just 13%. I think it's exponentially more than that as an equitable system, but that's okay to have a conversation. You have to agree on some definition. So I went with the other, which is fine. doesn't make any difference, but I think it's a, it's a conflict in values. I also agree with something that you said that I've been thinking about a long time, it's that people just don't understand. Like when they hear equity, it's a, you know, positive valence. It's a nice sounding word. Oh, you know, equity, you know, equity, you have equity in your house. The house is a hundred thousand. We have $60,000 and $60,000 equity. It's kind of a good thing. They don't understand. No, nobody's arguing for diversity or equity on, on sports teams. I've been saying this for years. I used to think that people only wanted diversity and equity when they thought things didn't matter, like philosophy departments. You know, we need equitable representation of, you know, women or what have you. But I don't think that anymore. I think that this virus is so pervasive in the society. And what I'm struggling with now is, so, so I'll, I'll ask, I'll, I'll ask people. So if I ask somebody, you know, I go around the world and I ask people these questions. If I ask somebody, you know, would would you rather live in the United States or Russia, or would you rather be ruled by United States or Russia, or would you rather have a, 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 a an equitable system that takes in more minorities? If I ask them, if I put it on them, so I say, you live, you have a choice of one of two universes. In the first universe is an equity based system, and you need brain surgery. And the second universe is an Ameri- meritocratic system, and you need brain surgery. Which one would you go? Most people to that will say, I'll go to the first system, an equity-based system. However, all I need to do is change one word. If I say it's your son or your daughter or someone you love, which universe would you rather go into? A merit-based system or an equity-based system? What should you rather assign them to if they need brain surgery? They will say, invariably, the meritocracy. Sorry, I was long-winded there. I would say um, that the the way we started this conversation with you being very explicit that the goal of medicine is no longer to heal people, but to be representative right. and role models at the cost, at the expense of of quality 
and the ability to care. Um, I, I would, I'm not sure that a, a lefty in most instances would ever acknowledge that that's the trade-off. I still think now one always gets, into, they really believe it or not believe it. In one sense, it doesn't matter. But I'm not sure, as I said before, that people appreciate how vast the skills gaps are so that in order to engineer proportionality or more than proportionality, how much you have to sacrifice merit. I, I, okay, I, I, I agree. I think they said that. But on the other hand, sometimes, sometimes uh, a more honest argument is made, which is profoundly nihilistic, which is to deny the meaningfulness or the validity of our meritocratic tests and assessments and so or to say something is more important no, something say that it doesn't you know that sh doesn't me measure anything relevant. right and and the real test for this would be uh are you willing to go to a lottery system for admissions because if you really believe that the sat or the mcats or the lsat measure nothing they're not predictive one's capacity to be a doctor or a lawyer uh, or succeed in a selective school then go to a lottery-based system and throw out any kind of objective terror. and some you know we may we may come to that after if the supreme court overturns racial preferences but but anyway sometimes they will be honest and make a completely uh corrosive argument that there is actually no such thing as differences in skills or competencies. Yeah, you used the word acknowledge before. Uh, I would also add the word admit. You you said that people won't acknowledge that. Um, and, and, and so it is my belief, I don't see how, unless you're a total idiot, I do not understand how you could not see that and again, it could you you maybe you've answered this that they don't understand how great the disparities are. But I don't understand how you could see that saying ahead of time you're going to pick from two percent of the graduates because they're black. How could you not understand that that almost guarantees that you will not get the most qualified person? Like I don't like I don't even think it, nobody who's thought about you don't even need to think about that for two seconds. No. I know the chance of getting the most quality is like 0.001% of that black female judge. It's unbelievable. But again, Peter, the only way I can explain this that accords with any hope that human beings are in, in like a one one hundredth rational, as I say, just to repeat, and you just said it yourself, yeah. is they actually do not know how great the skills gaps are. And they actually do believe that skills are equally spread. You know, one of the things I talk about in the book is just this amazing thing where Anytime now, and this has been going on for decades, if a black person doesn't get a, a job or a promotion, it's because of discrimination. Right. Inevitably, if a white person doesn't get a job or a promotion, we are willing to contemplate, well, maybe you just weren't qualified. But that doesn't ever pertain to a black person. It is always based on discrimination and racism. Uh, and that's that's a very hard thing to, uh, you know, counter, but that they immediately assume. Uh, that there was no problem with with skills level or competitiveness, and it's all just based on discrimination. Yeah, may, maybe that's maybe that's the answer. I, I I really wish we could take black out of this because the, I really wish we could take the whole racial thing just completely out of it and present it in a neutral way to people and say, listen, um, 
here's a group that is even doing that is is difficult i guess maybe you could do it with an imaginary group of people from some island somewhere something like here's a group of people who have been historically underrepresented in across fields uh the gap is indeed significant we could talk about why the gap exists but that's not the purpose of the conversation do you think that there should be some kind of affirmative action or some kind of equity hiring or You'd have to watch the words you use, but I wonder if you took race out of it entirely. That I've made that argument in, in order to try to just the jujitsu you're, you're alluding to, Peter. I've I've taken like let's not talk about race preferences, let's talk about sex preferences, and I give an example. You know, if right. he admitted me with with you know mid middling math SATs, and my peers all had eight hundred on an eight hundred point scale, I would struggle. And it's not because of misogyny, although that's what I would be told. It's because there was mismatch going on, you know, mismatch theory of Richard Sander. uh, And that's not going to help me. I'm going to struggle and flounder and I'll probably switch out of my STEM major as as, uh, Peter Archidiacano has shown at Duke with major switching in in black uh, freshmen out of STEM. Uh, So you can do it in in with females. It's not. The gaps are not as great. They're the greatest at the tail ends of the distribution, which is what got Larry Summers, you know, right. from Harvard. Right. Uh, but yeah, I mean, one can take race out of it. On the other hand, at this point, uh, as I've been saying recently, I understand the the value of racial etiquette, and it, it's better. It would be better to not look at these very, very difficult truths that make Americans, especially white Americans, incredibly uncomfortable. Yeah. The hour is late. I and agree. I am not going to give a whole lot of deference to racial etiquette when what is happening in 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 the name of fighting phony, fake racism is tearing down every civilizational standard and things that I, I truly love and cherish. I agree. And I, I want to thank you for having the role play with me today. I appreciate it. And I loved your book. I thought it was fantastic. And you're a good sport. <laughs> you, you're a good sport today. Uh, so, so thank you. Where can people find your book and where can people find you? Oh, thank you, Peter. Um, well, I don't even know my Twitter handle. I do have a Twitter account, but it's a weird handle. So if you just Google Heather McDonald and Twitter, that will take you to my account. And it's- Sort of Mac Donald, M A C Donald. Yeah, who knows? It's very weird. Um, yeah. So, but that gives you sort of a recent rundown of appearances and writing stuff. And then the book is just wherever you buy books, whether you go uh, to an actual physical bricks and mortar thing, if they still exist, or online. Well, thank you. And uh, it was really good to, to see you. Hopefully, I'll see you again in person soon. Mm-hmm.